And then this third challenge is the arrival of crickets. The best analogy I can make is think of a horror movie you've seen with the insects just moving on you in hundreds of thousands, if not millions of them, just moving towards you. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. We're so glad that you're here to join us today as we discuss Chapter 7 from Saints, Keep Up Good Courage. And this is Saints Volume 2. Today in the studio, we have a wonderful guest with us. We have Jenny Lund, who is the director of the Historic Sites Division in the Church History Department in Salt Lake City. Welcome, Jenny. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Jenny, before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about the Historic Sites Division, what your work is that you do there, and help our listeners get to know you just a little bit? Sure. So our division is responsible for helping create and shape the interpretation at historic sites. So we do the research. Sometimes it involves archaeological research. Sometimes it's uh, research in the archival collections or photographs and maps that help us know what the site was like at the time an event of significance happened. And then we help shape that site, number one, to protect it, and two, to help visitors be able to engage with the site when they visit. And where are the sites, just for our listeners who might not know all the sites that are official historic sites of the church? We have about two dozen spread out across the United States, from the Joseph Smith birthplace in Vermont to the Mormon Battalion Visitor Center in San Diego, California. Are there any particular projects or sites that you're working on right now that you'd want to tell us about? So there's a project in Nauvoo, which visitors will see on the ground. We've already started construction on a few things. It's called the Temple Legacy District, and it will really be talking about the history of the temple, the construction of the temple, and the meaning of the temple to Latter-day Saints. That sounds so neat. Well, we are delighted to have you with us, Jenny. Jenny is a powerhouse, I have to tell you, in the church history department. She's incredible to work with. She has a fantastic team that cares for and helps us understand our historic sites. And I'm just super happy that you could be with us. In our chapter we're talking about today, we're learning about the challenges that face the saints now that they've arrived in the Salt Lake Valley. And it's not like the very best. There's mud and there's rodents. What's going on? What's it like for the saints? So that first winter and the ensuing spring is an extremely difficult time. And sometimes we think, oh, winter's got to be the worst, but that's not necessarily true. It was more the spring when the foodstuffs had decreased even lower because now they've eaten a lot more food and the possibility of starvation is more on people's minds. Uh, In addition, it was a really late frost. So that caused some additional problems because stuff they had planted then froze. And then they have to replant if they've got enough seed to do so. So they're starting to think it's going to be real tenuous what kind of a harvest they're going to get. And remember, they've not planted anything in these valleys before, so they're not totally sure how many cycles of crops you'll get if you plant hay, how many cuttings of hay do you get. They're not exactly sure exactly when they're going to be able to harvest. And so those are real challenges. Something that I thought was interesting was Okay, we meet someone named John Smith. He's Joseph Smith's uncle and George Albert Smith's dad. And he's called as the stake president in Salt Lake. And so 
in talking about him, I want to talk about the duties of a stake president in the 1800s the, versus stake presidents today, because his responsibility, one of them was to figure out how to feed all these people. And he was very involved in that. And there were 1,700 people in his stake. So there's a quote from the book that we'll listen to just to kind of set up this situation. Yet John also wrote openly about the challenges in the city. Several saints had already become discontented with life in the valley and left for California. That winter, a group of Indians who had long hunted for food in Utah Valley drove off and killed some of the saints' cattle. Violence nearly broke out, but the saints and the Indians negotiated peace. Of greatest concern, however, was the lack of food. In November, John had authorized a company of men to travel to the California coast to purchase livestock, grain, and other supplies. So the duties of a stake president were, in this situation, very, very different because he has to be concerned about all the temporal needs of the community, not just spiritual needs, but all of the temporal needs, as well as the dangers and the unknowns that they will face settling in this valley, which had not yet been inhabited by Anglo settlers before. Certainly Native Americans had traversed these valleys and lived in these valleys for generations. But for a group of Anglo settlers from the eastern United States to come out here and settle, there were a lot of unknowns that he as stake president is going to have to grapple with. If you notice, the book says he's probably the oldest man in the valley, and he's 60 Six. So that's an interesting feature that they pull out because in the 19th century, once you hit about 50, at that point, you they started to consider you elderly. That's very different than the way we would consider people today. Right. But at his age, that's why the book kind of makes a point about that is because he is probably the oldest man in the community and he's all of a sudden having to shoulder all these burdens, which normally wouldn't be placed on somebody in that age range. Wow. So in 1848, gold is discovered in California. Can you tell us about how members of the church were involved in that discovery and what that meant for the early saints? It's interesting that several members of the Mormon battalion, who had now been dismissed from their service, so they were veterans of the Mormon battalion, had gone north to an area around the Sacramento area and gotten jobs with John Sutter building a mill on the American River. And so they were up there working on this mill race when the man in charge of building the mill, John Marshall, looked down in the mill and he saw some flecks of something and didn't quite know what it was, so he pulls it out and finds some more and then yells, gold, we found gold. And that is the point that starts the gold rush. And actually, it's the Mormon battalion veterans, one in particular, Henry Bigler, who was keeping a diary that actually documents the date. That's the only reason we know the exact date on wow. which that was happened because of his diary. So several of the Mormon battalion veterans, others who had kind of were working in other places, they're waiting for the snows to melt. They're waiting to get outfits together so that they can cross the Sierra Nevada and get to the Salt Lake Valley or to go on to their families in the Midwest, around Omaha and Council Bluffs. But they spend that time, many of them come up to that area, hunting for gold, looking for gold in the river. And many of them find it. It also creates a stir in San Francisco. I used to live in Folsom, California. And when I moved there, I, of course, knew about the finding of gold, and I knew that the Mormon battalion folks had been involved. But lo and behold, there's a Mormon Island State Park 
in hmm. California to this day. And uh, during the last drought in California, Lake Folsom, which has been dammed, it drained enough that they actually went out and did some excavation work out on Mormon Island. So it's it's actually still there, you know, Mormon Island State Park in California at the very spot. That's right, exactly. And that's where some of these Mormon Battalion veterans were camped. They certainly weren't the only ones there, but it got the nickname Mormon Island and it just stuck. That's pretty amazing. Let's listen to a quote here from the book that talks about the California saints and what Addison Pratt observed. Like many other California saints, Addison Pratt prospected for gold at a place called Mormon Island while he waited for snow to melt from the trail over the Sierra Nevada mountains. To make more money, Sam had convinced the veterans to give him 30% of all the gold discovered in the area, supposedly to purchase cattle for the saints in the Salt Lake Valley. Addison doubted any money from Mormon Island would ever go toward helping the church. In the months he had lived in San Francisco, Addison had observed that Sam, for all his professions of faith and devotion, was becoming more and more interested in self-promotion and getting rich than in the kingdom of God. So, Jenny, we met Sam Brannan earlier when the saints took the Brooklyn. What's happening with Samuel Brannan here that Addison calls him Sam in that quote? So Sam Brannan is really an interesting figure. It makes you wonder how sincere his faith was even in the beginning sometimes about the decisions he makes. He was seen as a tyrant on board the Brooklyn by many of those saints. The conflict became so high there was supposedly risk of a mutiny on board the ship. And he arrives in California and and he's just blown away by how fabulous California is. This is not an unknown to people at the time. So the saints who were on their way to Utah would have heard all these rumors about how high the grass grows in California and how temperate the climate is and you can raise crops year-round. And the, the idea of California in America at the time was that California was this land of golden opportunity here. But it's also really distant and very difficult. So then after the gold discovery... That just propels people there. Not only is this beautiful land where you can raise crops and run cattle and have all these things you need and accessibility to the ocean, but my goodness, there's gold too. And that's what just really drives this influx of visitors. Sam Brennan, I think, is really just caught up in that whole idea that California is the golden place. And now that gold is discovered, he's off chasing gold. And that it sounds like he drove people to want to leave sooner. You know, how he was reacting with the gold and wanting to take 30%. They just wanted to meet their families and leave for Utah. So, yes, those those battalion veterans had been separated a long time, and they'd made a real sacrifice. That journey across the American Southwest was extremely difficult. Very, very long infantry march under very harsh circumstances. And They just wanted to get back to their families, and they were worried about their families, wherever they were, whether they were in the Midwest or whether some of them had come on to the Salt Lake Valley. And so they wanted to get home. But Addison Pratt, obviously, he's expressing that he's got some concerns. He's seeing something in Sam Brannan that causes him concern. Well, and at this point, correct me if I'm wrong, but after the Brooklyn landed, Samuel Brannan and others went with him over Donner's Pass, didn't they find the Donner Party? So Sam Brandon did find the Donner Party, so he was aware of those issues that the Donner Party had experienced. And then, wow. and then he came and 
told Brigham, you've, you've got to come on to California. Yes, it's this great place. What are you doing stopping here? Come on. And when Brigham tells him, Samuel, we're not going to California, he turns and returns to California anyway. So maybe this is another reason why Addison may be questioning is, I don't know if he knew that Brigham Young had told him we're, we're not going to California, but he's already started to go against the prophet's counsel. And it seems like Brigham Young, who I think is really pretty astute sense of people, it looks like Brigham Young's already starting to raise his eyebrows about Sam Brannan and what's going on here. He doesn't really engage in Sam's enthusiasm or anything. Other people are think, oh, this sounds like a good idea, but Brigham Young does not. So in 1848, we have saints in California and we have saints that are coming to Utah from more eastern places. So what is it like when they get to the valley? I I know some people said that it was a paradise, but there was one person, her name's Harriet Young. She described it as not a paradise. I like what she said. She said, weak and weary as I am, I would rather go a thousand miles farther than remain in such a forsaken place as this. And her husband felt the same way. And so they just feel heartsick about this place. So tell us what's going on. So I think if you came from the eastern United States and came from land which was either lush forests, as some did in upstate New York and other places, or were in areas of the Midwest, which is just really fabulous farmland, it would be a shock to think of settling and making a home in a valley with a giant salt lake. Not a real lake, but a giant salt lake. (laughs) And what they saw here. Now, we sometimes over-exaggerate and we say, oh, it was a desert. Well, the Salt Lake Valley isn't a desert. It's called a steppe land, which is a grassland. So when the pioneers came into the Salt Lake Valley, what they would have seen is on the floor of the valley, mostly grass. On the hillsides, it was uh, probably a lot of sagebrush. looks somewhat like it does now. And then along the creek beds, there would have been cottonwood trees, but not a lot of trees, just you'd be able to pick out each of those creek lines in the valley by the row of cottonwoods that were there. So that looked really different. On the other hand, the land was good, the grass, some people said it was so high it could tickle the bellies of the horses. Mm -hmm. So that is tall, lush grassland. And so it was a good place to settle. But it probably looked really barren and foreboding. And the thought of being here so isolated from other communities and any opportunity to buy any goods, any merchants, anything that another community could supply you was something that was probably very daunting. Harriet and her husband, to their credit, they built a home, they planted crops, and they just kept up their courage. And they said they were hoping for the best. However, we'll hear from the book what happens to them. On May 27, 1848, however, swarms of wingless crickets descended on the valley from the mountains and swept across the young's yard at an alarming speed. The crickets were large and black with armor-like shells and long antennae. They consumed the young's bean patch and peas in a matter of minutes. Harriet and Lorenzo tried to beat the crickets back with handfuls of brush but there were too many. The insects soon spread far and wide, feeding ravenously on the saints' crops, leaving dry stalks where corn or wheat used to be. The saints did everything they could think of to stop the crickets. They smashed them 
They burned them. They tried hitting pots and pans together, hoping the noise would drive them away. They dug deep trenches and tried to drown them or block their paths. They prayed for help. Nothing seemed to work. Jenny, this is a, an episode that sometimes we have heard it called the miracle of the goals. And sometimes it feels like maybe that story's gotten compressed down to just a moment. But this wasn't just one moment. Tell us a little bit more about the background, what had happened before the crickets, and what's going on here. So the story of the crickets is a part of a larger story about the difficulty of raising crops the first year in the valley. And so there were a series of frosts that went late, went into May. The last frost was in May. And that can really be devastating when you're planting crops that you hope to harvest in July or August. And so there was a delay in the crops, and they probably lost some of the seed that they'd planted. So that made it difficult. And then you have this uncertainty around how we're going to get irrigation water to everything that we've planted. So that was an additional challenge because they knew there would not be a great deal of rainfall in this valley in the summertime. And then this third challenge that ha occurs in May is the arrival of crickets. I think people today have a hard time imagining, but the best analogy I can make is think of a horror movie you've seen with the insects just moving on you in hundreds of thousands, if not millions of them, just moving towards you. And that is what the experience looked and, like. And I can tell you, literally from firsthand experience. I grew up and we had a farm near Malad, Idaho. And during the time I grew up, there was a summer that we had a Mormon cricket invasion. Mm -hmm. And we had a, I'm not kidding you, we had a, this little farmhouse that was out there. And when we arrived, the entire side of the house was just moving. I mean, literally like a horror movie, just black and moving in this flock kind of motion. It was, oh, it was so... <laughs> horrible and and they were everywhere like the road was literally slick yes from so many smashed bugs on the roadway and of course you know we had pesticides and things that we could try to take care of it but i can totally empathize if you are hungry when you watch your bean patch and one of these clouds of horrible black beasts comes along and just devours it it's terrible when you've already been discouraged trying to get water to it and trying to build it from nothing and even one man, he said, I've stopped building my mill because there will be no grain to grind. But then the state president, John, who we've talked about, he just said, go ahead with your mill. If you do so, you'll be blessed. And he just says that it will be a source of endless joy. But I can't imagine feeling that hope when you're just watching not only your livelihood, but your source of food yes. just being devoured. And this goes on for several weeks. And they try everything they can think of. So they try burning fields. They try drowning them, digging ditches and drowning the crickets. They try beating them. They send little children out with hammers and brooms and uh, anything hard to pound on the crickets, and they try and make as much headway as they can. And it's like they make no difference at all. The bugs just seem to keep coming. So that's kind of the situation they're in, and it's very dire. They're talking about the real potential of starvation, and some people are saying we should go to California. That's what they're saying is we need to leave this place behind and go to California and escape all of this. And then we do have some relief that comes in the form of what we now call the miracle of the goals. Tell us about that and how we know about that from the time. So in quite a dramatic incident, Charles C. Rich, who was a counselor to President Smith and the stake presidency, stood up on a wagon 
and he starts to talk to them. And just as he's starting to talk, all of a sudden these, these seagulls start flying overhead. And pretty soon it's just waves and waves of seagulls. And the seagulls light on the fields where the crickets are, and they start eating the crickets. And then they pick up and they fly out to a water source. And then what they do is they regurgitate the undigestible parts of the cricket, and then they come back for more. And so this is just an incredible phenomenon to the saints who are there in the valley to see this, these seagulls responding like that and eating the crickets. So we have a number of diaries and lots of reminiscences that talk about this incident. And many people say, you know, the Lord's hand was in this. President Smith writes to Brigham Young and says, we feel like the Lord's hand was in this. The broader perspective is it didn't save all the crops. Sometimes we we give it more credit than the incident had. Sometimes we say, oh, it saved every bit of grain. No, it didn't. But I think the real thing that it did is it gave the saints hope. They felt like they were being blessed and that there was hope that they could survive this instant. And many of those people who were talking about going to California didn't go. Some did, but most didn't. And so they stayed. I love that perspective, Jenny. And I would invite our readers, you can go to the footnotes in Saints Volume 2. You can actually check the sources. It links over to the Church History Library catalog. You can read from some of those original sources and uh, see for yourself what the saints at that time said. For me, reading this story again, I took something new that I hadn't seen before. Sometimes when I remember thinking about the miracle of the goals in the past, I would think there's a problem. They said a prayer. Heavenly Father fixed it. And really, it was more like there was frost, then there was water issues, then they had the crickets, and then weeks later, they received some relief enough for hope. And that truly, it gives me a new perspective to know that when I need answers to my prayers, that oftentimes it takes a while, and when the answer comes, it won't necessarily solve all my problems right away, but it's enough to give me hope to move forward. I love that part about this story, so thank you for sharing that with us. That's a great insight. We have another story, too. So meanwhile, let's go to winter quarters. We have some saints in winter quarters, and Louisa Pratt is there with her daughters, and we talked earlier about Addison Pratt, her husband, who's in California, and he's going to be making his way to Salt Lake. Hopefully, they're going to meet. Jenny, tell us about Louisa. What's her situation like as she's trying to decide when to make that journey to Salt Lake? Louise is really in quite desperate circumstances because her husband has been away on a mission for, at this point, almost a total of five years. He's been, went to the South Pacific to Tahiti, and he is now back in the United States and planning to work his way east. And so she's uncertain. So does she know he's actually there in California, and will he meet her in the Salt Lake Valley? I think that's certainly the hope. She's got to get a wagon. She's got to get the animals to drive the wagon. If my memory's right, she was living in somebody else's house in Nauvoo. And then in winter quarters, she's living in a dugout. So she just doesn't have a lot of resources. Plus, she became very ill. A lot of people living in winter quarters became quite ill, and she had scurvy, which, as a result, some of her front teeth had fallen out. Mm -hmm. So she's been very ill, dealing with all of these challenges. And then she has to get the wherewithal together and then drive a team west. Now, Brigham Young is very aware of her. 
He knows that her husband has been a missionary, and he comes to the rescue with help getting her outfitted with the goods she needs to make the trip, getting her flour to support her family. And if my memory's right, he arranges for the church to provide an extra set of oxen, uh, extra team, so that she can make that journey and hires a driver for her. So she's got somebody to drive those oxen all the way to the Salt Lake Valley. But it's a long ways. It's more than a thousand miles journey across what in their minds is the wilderness. You have to remember, not a lot of people have taken this trip yet. And Uh, about how long is that taking the saints at this point? So the very first company took them 111 days to go from winter quarters to the Salt Lake Valley. So roughly, if you think in the terms of three months, particularly that first group, and then the second year, this big group that Louise is going to be a part of, part of their problem is they have so many people, so many cattle, so many sheep, that it is hard to move quickly. So it takes a long, long time for that company to move across the country. A lot of people found the journey to be difficult, It wasn't a lot of fun, but it wasn't entirely just dreadful. And one of the things that I really liked about Louisa, she seems to be one of these people that she can have a positive attitude even when there's pretty difficult circumstances. I love this quote from the book where it says, At first, Louisa found little joy in traveling, but soon she took pleasure in seeing the green prairie grass, the colorful wildflowers, and the dappled patches of ground along the riverbanks. The gloom on my mind wore gradually away, she recorded, and there was not a more mirthful woman in the whole company. I think that's such an awesome picture to have of her, even in these trying circumstances, on her own, with all of these problems and difficulties, she's actually finding joy in the journey. And I think that's something possibly we can all learn from. I think Louise is a good example of what the typical experience for a pioneer was. Yes, the journey is difficult, it is stressful, but they're also having one of the great adventures, not only of their own life, but of people in America in that time to be able to go west. For those who did not encounter great difficulties, like some of the handcart pioneers or other companies that faced in incredible difficulty or tragedy, they have a fairly pleasant journey west. Her company does. And so what you see is her exulting in this experience of this grand adventure and just being stunned at the beauty and the grandeur of the American West. Just the immensity of it. The immensity. You see the diaries and the reminiscences. They talk about the heights of the mountains. They've never seen anything like this before. And the buffalo roaming on the prairie and all these sights and sounds that are new and different and exciting. And I love this imagery of her so it was two months into their journey they stopped at Independence Rock. So she and her daughters, they climbed up to the top of the rock and they saw names of other travelers that were etched in and and painted on. And she just had previously felt so alone. And then she realized, you know, not only when she's looking around is God with them, she, that makes her not feel alone, but she feels the company of people who've gone before and that will certainly come after. And I just feel like that's inspiring to me thinking of the legacy of everyone that's gone before. And so in my difficulties, I'm not alone. There's so many people who have paved the way. And I just, I love that this example that she is. She's part of this grand pageant of history, if you will. So Jenny, that first spring in the valley, can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? 
Well, I think the best way to encapsulate that experience is a story that Eliza R. Snow told in her reminiscence about the first couple of years in the valley. And she talked about how in that spring, the rains came, and they were living in log cabins or adobe cabins, all of which had brush and dirt roofs. And so here she is living in this cabin, and the rains come, and they're just heavy downpour. And she talks about one night she spent sitting up in bed, holding an umbrella over her head, <laughs> as the water just poured through those willows and dirt down. And the, the rocks that were in the dirt would just clink down. She could hear them clink on the floor. And that would startle the mice who would run around and squeal. And she said, what a setting that was. <laughs> or she called it, it was a, a scene most romantic is the word she used. Now, <laughs> not romantic in the way used today, but romantic in the way of, wasn't this a picturesque or an unusual scene to record? But that's a good way to encapsulate that experience. It was new. It was difficult. The setting wasn't ideal. The accommodations weren't ideal. But, you know, you get this sense from Eliza that she's making the best of it. She remembers it fondly years later when she's not soaking wet, how comical it was, and gives you that sense of, yeah, you can get through this thing. You look back. At the time, it could be seen as a terrible event, but looking back, it becomes comical. And, you know, we all go through those scenes where we face challenges, and the funniest stories we tell are things that weren't funny at the time. Right, the right? terrible things that happened to us. <laughs> Their optimism is incredible. I can't even imagine. Well, Jenny Lund, we are so grateful you had uh, an opportunity to come and talk with us today. We appreciate visiting with you. We invite our listeners to go to history.churchofjesuschrist.org and click on the historic sites link to see all the cool sites that the church has that Jenny and her team take care of. We invite you also, as you're listening, drop us a rating. You can always send us an email at saints podcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>